Welcome to another episode of Ideas Untrapped. This is an unplugged episode. I just want to say a few words about what is currently going on in the country and what today's episode is about. This is an important moment in the history of our nation, Nigeria. Young people have come out in great numbers to protest against brutality, extortion, killing, and other forms of injustice in the hands of the police. The rights and lives of every Nigerian should be safe and protected in the hands of law enforcement. And the anger of young people who disproportionately bear the brunt of the abuse is understandable. I spoke to three Nigerians today to take a pause of the moment. The conversation centers around police reform, broadly, and what this protest represents in that context. This was recorded on the 11th of October, and the protests are still ongoing, and sadly, lives have been lost. We, on the show, unequivocally condemn the killing of Nigerians for exercising their rights to protest peacefully. We urge the protesters to keep being peaceful. We appeal to our security forces to be calm and exercise restraint. Citizens and the police are not enemies, and the relationship between the two should not be adversarial. Finally, I just want to urge our political leaders, and this is important, Our political leaders and our stakeholders need to seize this moment to do what is right. It is the courage, empathy, and the intelligence of good leaders that bends the arc of history towards justice. Paul Romer famously said that a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. And I would like to appeal to our leaders to lead. Please, a better Nigeria is a win for all of us and this to me seemed like a good moment to set the right tone for the future thank you very much thank you for always listening thank you for your feedback and i wish everyone out there all the best i'm here with emmanuel elizabeth and Nongye. So we are still on the NSAS issue and the protests. Just earlier today, the IG of police announced the disbandment of the SARS units. But naturally, that announcement has been met with a lot of skepticism by people involved in the protest. That it's really just a case of palava changing name, so to speak. So what are your initial reactions? guys is it has the goal been achieved so to speak so i'll start with mano for me i think the immediate goal which is the disbandment dissolution or whatever you call it of the sas units the immediate goal based on both the demand of people and the announcement of the id has been met technically you can say it has been met but given precedent history we know that this has happened the same way three times before. The distrust of all of that announcement 
it's understandable. And so people, protesters, youth would naturally want a more a more substantial action, something around either the president giving the directive on live TV and all of those things that come with it, than just another announcement on TV by IGP, who many people even feel is culpable, given the fact that as we currently speak, um, there are still police harassment in places, in, in pockets in Abuja and all of those places. So the distrust is understandable. I, for one, I think that this is a good first step. I think this is a good first step, but the implementation of this directive, of this order to disbance us is the next thing. And I think that is where we should now begin to focus attention. The IGP should give us a list of meaningful actions that should be taking timelines around when this will be done as a precursor, so to speak, to a larger reform of the police or institution of police to end brutality and all of that. But I think technically the simple goal of ending SARS based on this directive has been achieved. But I think we can do more, we can play the optics of this better. The president can come out and make a statement to give weight to the actions um, of the IG or to the declarations of the IG. And I think that way we will begin, people will begin to believe or buy into the fact that this will not be business as usual and this will be the beginning of the end of that unit and the beginning of more. Okay, Elizabeth, what, what are your reactions? Okay. So for me, it's a victory, um, albeit a small victory, but it's a victory all the same. Like Emmanuel rightly said, I mean, I totally agree with his position. It's just the beginning. I mean, it is just the beginning, and I would want to urge everyone that has stood up for this course not to relent. Because beyond ending it, Beyond that pronouncement, beyond that directive from the IG, I mean, we like Imane has already said, we've seen three of this. We've seen this about three times before now. This is the fourth pronouncement we'll be having to end SARS. So the, the implementation process is what we really need to see. I mean, if we need to have this codified for it to be enforceable, if it has to be backed up legally, then that is what we should do. I mean, this is just the IG of the police talking to us. The president that the people has elected, that they put their trust in, has gone completely silent on this matter. Like, it doesn't really matter to him. Like, he's not seeing any reason why something that matters so much, this menace that has eaten so deep into our society right now and taking the lives of our youth, like, he has not seen a reason for him to even make a statement about it or to condemn it or to be the one to even address us and put our minds at ease over this issue. You know, so if we can get the buy-in of all these stakeholders, let's know where they stand on this. Let's know that this is not just, they're not just paying lip service to this matter because this is not the first time we're going to be seeing this. So yes, implementation is key right now. So I would urge everyone not to relent on the protests until we start seeing things. I mean, I don't really blame everyone for the distrust because we've seen this happen over and over and over again and it has not ended. Saying that SAS has been dissolved right now, and then saying that they will also be redeployed to other units of the police department. It is police brutality. It's just, it was just called SAS. So the police is still there. Of course, no one is asking the police to go, but we need a holistic reform of the institution of the police. And then let's have the step-by-step process of which these reforms will be implemented. And then our minds can be at rest. I mean, it's just the beginning as far as we are concerned. This is just the beginning. This is actually not the end. Okay. All right. Um, I agree with what my friends here have said. If we're talking about the 
goal, why they started. I think this is a good step. But knowing Nigeria for what it is, we actually can't claim victory just yet. I would refer to what Elizabeth said as this is the beginning. SARS was disbanded last year. It was in 2017. It was before in 2018. It's been disbanded for quite a while now and things didn't change. So I wouldn't call it a victory yet. But in terms of keeping the message simple and clear and the focus, I would comment that that was fantastic. And I think that's a good thing to keep up towards this end. So for me now, I would say after this, we know what we want next, which is let the president, the commander in chief come and speak to us. And we know this is backed by some kind of executive order, but we won't still stop there. We were discussing earlier about police reform act and all of that. What would we do? Let's work on an amendment that would give us a clear chain of accountability in the police force. Because even if SARS is disbanded, we know that there is police brutality. So it would take another shape or form still within the police force. So do we start all over again and then start agitating against that all over again? Let's find a way to work on a bill or whatever we have to do as an amendment to the already passed police act that gives us a clear chain of command, the accountability measures, what's to be done and all of that. And we can then channel our focus towards getting that enacted. And then we know we have something to reference whenever anything happens. One of the issues that came up a few weeks ago Funny enough, it was about the Police Act of 2020. And I remember a lot of people in the press and on social media and some people in civil society complained that that particular bill gave the Nigerian police too much power, especially in the areas of the conditions required to stop and search people. And I recall that this was one of the initial actions taken by the current IGB on SARS that, oh yeah, they can no longer do stop and search and they should only respond in cases of violent crimes and all that. Now, what I want to get your reactions to generally, because it may feel like we are picking on the Nigerian police. We are not. I think generally... It's an abusive relationship with law enforcement in general, whether it's the Nigerian army or the customs. So now, my question is, what should define the next set of demands by maybe movements from these protests or ordinary citizens or other people working in the background to formalize this? What should fundamentally define the conditions what do we want as citizens in our relation with law enforcement? I'll start with Elizabeth. Okay, so as a citizen of Nigeria, I want my freedom. I want my rights to be protected. And I would expect that from a police officer at the least, someone who is supposed to know the law and to act to enforce the law, someone who is trusted with the law. These people are people who are supposed to secure us and protect our lives. And... We believe that they are supposed to be trained and then have the knowledge, full and in-depth knowledge of the law. I mean, it is disappointing that a lot of our police officers actually don't even know what they are doing. 
we don't even know whether they get trained or they just get uniforms and they push them out there. We really don't know how this is done. We know that there's a police academy and all of that, but we don't know what's going on there. Sometimes the lawyer will go to... The only reason, as a matter of fact, that some policemen would be afraid of lawyers is because they don't even know whether you are lying to them or you are saying the truth about your client's rights. They don't even really know if you are right or wrong. They don't know how to. You're, except for probably policemen who are prosecutors, who take cases to court and prosecute offenders, you understand. So yes, of course, I would want all of these tenets that we claim to be the I mean, the basic, the fundamentals of the institution. I, I would want them to actually be true, to actually be put into practice. That bail is free, that the police is my friend, for example. Mm-hmm. Of course, right now I know the police is not my friend. The police is not the friend of any Nigerian youth out there at the moment. So yes, I would want my freedom. The freedom to associate, my freedom of movement, my freedom to be heard, my freedom to appear as I want to and not be harassed because of what I look like. And not be harassed because of my age. Not be harassed because of my hairstyle. So I want a police that I am sure and my mind is at rest that my rights are guaranteed. I want a police force that I don't feel threatened. My life does not feel threatened when I come across them. I don't shake in fear and they just do whatever they please. I want a police that will not extort me of my hard-earned money. That is the kind of relationship that I want and I believe every Nigerian youth out there wants with the police. Mm-hmm. Okay, regarding that question, I think I'm going to think about this in a way that we know there are universal rights mm-hmm. for people, and we know that there are certain philosophies that undergird those rights. But the question I'll ask is, what is the reason d'etre of the police force? Why do we have the police force in the first place? Because if we understand why we have that, then we can then know how that relationship is broken. Wants the, the, the motto to go. is yes, to serve please. and let's protect. Do, yeah, yeah, the, the motto is to, to serve, serve and, and protect. protect. Yeah. Serve who and protect who? Uh, people. Supposedly the citizens. But that's not specified. Because for me, when I think about such things, it just seems arbitrary to me. Because we are talking the citizens. But they would also protect people that relationship, I still, for me, I still don't understand. That's why I'm talking about philosophy. That's why I'm talking about universal right. Because I don't even know where to place that relationship in terms of police. But I know that we can all subscribe to some form of universal expectation of the police. And we want this, we want that. I'm always like, is there something beyond what we just see? Is there any other systemic issue that we have to solve before we can actually have a consistency of action from the police. Because we'll come today, we would agitate, they would uh, adjust, and then they would be back to where they were. We've been doing this, it, me personally, I've been at this protest front for, I don't know. So I'm, I've gotten to a point where I'm thinking, what exactly is going on? How can we find a lasting solution to these kinds of issues? Sometimes I think, perhaps economic growth, if you were a richer country, Maybe we would be able to solve these problems more. Maybe we would have elites that can think and then put up more actionable and, um, let me say, possibly balanced solution. You know, something that is kind of win-win situation for everybody, some kind of non-zero-sum situation than what we have now. 
So sometimes I think that could be the situation. Sometimes I'm thinking, oh, what's the philosophy? Sometimes I think, what's the role of the judiciary? You know, for me, it's still a mishmash of all kinds of things. But yes, people have their rights. We can't deny that. Whether you're a police force, whether you're the military, whatever it is, whether even as a government, because I know the government has the monopoly on violence here, people still have their rights, especially vis-a-vis the government, because you have the monopoly of violence. These people are armless people. They are not armed. They have no guns. They have nothing. So the first order for the police is to harass. It shouldn't be so, except there is no notion of personhood with the people you are interacting with. I don't know the kind of initiation they do for them in their military schools or police schools or whatever it is they teach them or the kind of people they even recruit into the system. But for me now, the relationship has to, we have to define it in a sense that is mutually beneficial for, for both sides. Mm. That's what I think about. Emmanuel, what, what kind of police force would you like to see mm. and what should define that for me the basis of policing a society should be around basically civic engagement you cannot have a successful police force or you cannot successfully secure a state or a jurisdiction without some form of civic engagement so basically beyond the typical trainings where you have to be able to solve crimes and all of this you have to be accessible approachable People have to be able to trust. And so I think one of the most important things for the Nigerian police in this case is to be able to win the trust of the citizens. And in this case, the youth. Because there is no hiding from the fact that policing has broken down completely in Nigeria. We have seen instances where we know the police would work if they are sufficiently motivated to do so. So it is not a function of either they you know, have the competencies to do it. And so I think the first thing we should try to do with our police in trying to reform the whole institution and all of that is ensure that they understand that the people they are dealing with are the major stakeholders in their campaign, in their success. Police should be well trained on weapon handling, first of all. I approach a policeman and beyond fear that he's going to shoot me intentionally, I have to worry that he might shoot me unintentionally. Mm. And that is a very, very major, major problem in Nigeria. People have lost their lives to errors. Accidental discharges. Accidental discharges, either real or genuine or fake. Errors in handling weapons. In fact, in this protest, somebody died out of stray bullets. These are things you do not hear about so often in the military. And when you hear of it in the military, it is almost always a cover-up. Because they are properly trained, they have a sense of responsibility when they have their weapons on them. And so that should be a very important thing, how to behave yourself when you own the monopoly of violence in a particular interaction. And then the recruitment process, when policemen do not have enough command of either the language of interaction or the laws that should guide interaction or just generally operating procedures to interact or to carry out their duties. And then communication breaks down, which is always the first thing. Our policemen are always either high on drugs or high on drinks or high on power. Mm. When there is some form of tension, they become aggressive. All of those things have to be addressed fundamentally. Policing cannot be effective, cannot be successful if we cannot address simple issues. They must know how to engage people properly. They must have rules of engagement. That They must be trained properly in handling weapons. And as Ronke pointed out, the chain of accountability must be clearly defined 
so you know when there's a problem in an interaction you can actually run it back over and over to investigate and extract causes either first causes in this case or secondary causes and all of those things policemen and frontline should almost be customer service for police mm. in the way they interact with people in the way they handle themselves in the way they even deal with violent crime um, because of crime and occurred does not mean laws and rules should be broken and dispensed of because you have the monopoly of violence in that situation. So all of those things should be defined and people should be able to know that when there's an interaction with police, the end-to-end processes that occur there can always be audited, reviewed and lessons learned at each stage. And if people do not have that trust in police, in the systems, in the rules, in the engagement, there is no way we will have effective policing. And this is not even speaking of the bigger issues to deal with in reforming the whole police as a whole. This is just at the front line investigations and interactions with citizens. And so that trust is very important. That training is very important. Recruitment is a very important part of this. And as we go, we will learn lessons and make corrections over and over again. And I think that way we will begin to have less trouble, less complaints from people, from the citizens, and more stakeholder engagement, which will, in fact, yield um, more effective policy at the end of the day, and obviously, hopefully, less crime. That's how I that's how I see how we can manage that interaction. Mm. <clears throat> uh, excuse me, Toby, can I say something? Yeah, sure. What, what Emmanuel has described here is fantastic. But then I'm like, there has to be a cost, like a monetary cost to this. And we know that the police is grossly underfunded. So I'm thinking, it just occurred to me and I'm like, is there a way we can possibly also as, because that was what I meant when I said some kind of mutually beneficial situation where we can force these people. Because the police are so close to us. They are the closest law enforcement. So it, the relationship just has to be civil. We just have to trust ourselves. There has to be that trust. But if the police force is not funded, if they always embezzle whatever fund, that means we also have to fight on behalf of this police and demand accountability from the leaders. Because it appears that Nobody cares about this police force. And they are so important to us. They are very, very important in the society. So if we want what Emmanuel described, if we all up here want this kind of police we want, this police that is respectful of our rights, that is also respectful of the law, that is friends with us, that we can interact with, that we can depend on, that we can trust, we have to fight for the funding of the same police. Fund their training, put the money where this results would happen. I I don't think policemen and women actually earn living wages in Nigeria. I'm not sure if they are part of the minimum wage system because I know some of them earn less than the minimum wage. I'm not even sure of the state of their pensions. We just have to take at this point. At this point, anybody's pensions at this point. So that's a a critical issue, and I think we should lean on that a bit. There are some critical things as a government that you should do. And I think I tweeted something about this. Some people got angry with me, but whatever. Providing security for your citizen is part of your core function as a government. Securing the lives and property some people accuse me of being too libertarian with this point but maybe you guys can tell me where i'm wrong if you have a choice between having a well-funded 
a well-trained and a well-behaved police force and funding agriculture, for example. I think that by the very definition of the functions of the government, you should fund your police force, especially if you are in the kind of fiscal position that Nigeria has found itself in the last couple of years. So I think the same attitude affects the way things, especially that has to do with government involvement, gets handled in Nigeria. You have a case where you give people agricultural loans, but the road to their farms are terrible. They cannot transport those produce safely. There are no drainages. Some of those farms are flooded as we speak because there are bad roads. But yeah, you want to give them funding to farm. So is it a question of the Nigerian government has misaligned incentives or they have totally, and anybody can jump in, they have totally lost focus of what the core functions of government should be? Uh, I need to have hard copies of the constitution, older constitution of the 70s and 80s. And almost in the preamble, it says the main duties of the government is to strengthen our work for the people. I think that says a lot. People cannot thrive if they are not safe. Businesses will not thrive. Legitimate businesses will not thrive. Illegitimate businesses will thrive. And once you have that situation, everything is killed. So securing your state, both externally and internally, should be priority for any government. I think, in fact, that is where a government finds its legitimacy. A government that finds itself in the fiscal constraints that Nigeria finds itself would always be wiser to choose an option that helps to spur and enable other things. Where you get easier multipliers, if you fund a Greek, people are still going to be unsafe, it's still going to be bad. But if you secure the state, secure the country, people can invest funds to address other issues. And we begin to at least lay the foundations for a more prosperous nation. Of course, we still need the government to make rules. We still need the rules. We still need external investments. We still need, in some cases, um, government interventions targeted at all of that. But the first thing is to ensure that people are safe enough, secure enough, to even make that decision to either farm, go to school, there can be no economy in places where there is no security. And the North is an example. Even herders cannot herd because there are bandits and all of that. And so it's almost a question that answers itself. And while the people that feel that you should fund agriculture or fund some other manufacturing have a point, but you cannot reap as big a benefit as you would have if you had just secured the state and allowed private funding or even government interventions do the rest or where policies can intervene. So I think securing the state based on the, in fact, the preambles of the initial constitution we have is almost non-negotiable. It is sacrosanct and without it, there can be no economic activity. And that's how I see it. I totally agree with Emmanuel. The security first. But now, agric misplaced priority, that's obviously going on because if you have limited resources, where do you put your money? You put it where you get the best return. In fact, that's the time you have to be most prudent. I was doing research in 2013 during Ebola, and I stumbled on this part where there's the Sahara encroachment along the northern border. And I was like, oh, 
Sahara encroachment, which means a lot of the herders are coming further south to feed their herds and all of that. So a lot of people are moving towards. So there's going to be tension along that border. And I was saying it, I was saying that, ah, if we are not careful, at that time, we hadn't even started this agric push that we later got into. If we're not careful, this is going to result into some kind of problem and all of that. And then 2015, this government came in and started their agriculture policy. So naturally, there's going to be a clash because agricultural land would expand into the pathways of the herders. And it happened because these people are farming. The herds will come and eat their crops. The herds, that is the corridor through which they feed ordinarily. So these people just come up with policies. They don't think about the second order effects of their policies. They just do things that they feel good about. You know, they just look at it and like, so people have legs, they have ants. Nigeria has many young people. Why can't they go to the village and farm? They should go and farm. And then they start doing all that. That's the way I think they think about policy here. Now, I won't even be, I know that they are in certain circles. I know people say Africa to feed the world and all of that. I get it. People can say Africa should feed the world. All of that can happen. But what of agricultural productivity? Is it about the numbers of people farming or the output coming from the farms? Like Imano said, there are no roads. I was researching about special economic zones a couple of years ago. And Nigeria had been doing special economic zones since it became a thing. Like, not since the inception, but since it became a thing. People started adopting research. 1992. Since 1992. But guess what? All the things that make special economic zones work, we didn't put that thing where we have special economic zones. Which is water, electricity, roads, the infrastructure that makes you reap the benefit earn foreign exchange because they are usually targeted towards export so now you're talking about agriculture where are those zones where you process your agricultural produce and there's the infrastructure to take them to the ports for export to earn this necessary foreign exchange but you can close the land border we are imputes into agriculture. they don't even know what trade is about they think it's zero sum they think it's because oh you have the largest market and all of that you can't produce everything you need you want to practice autarky in this day and age when logistics cost has, has really, really gone down, what's the advantage? What advantage does that confer to you? So, for me, misplaced priority and beyond misplaced priority, I also think the quality of minds at the ends of our affairs. The last Minister of Trade we had, Aganda, was from Goldman Sachs. And then you would think that someone from Goldman Sachs would have some modicum of, I don't want to say sense, but then when he got you just here, did. <laughs> so, but when he got here, all the things he started doing, and I was like, well, sometimes, even when we recruit these people, we don't know whether they are the last in their class in Harvard or whatever. Let's look at what they called. Is it the first class student or something? Let's try and get the best minds to come and work for us. Let's not get the runt of the litter, simply because they have stamp that says Harvard, and then they become superstars here. Let's not be the garbage dump of the bottom feeders where they are coming from let's not do that let's wake up and think about it these things are not hard they are not that hard even though they are hard in that sense but in fact we, there are so many places we could learn from but if we want to learn we'll learn the worst because those are usually easy to copy who we'll easily call people neo-colonialists when it's convenient for us now we are borrowing money we are taking money from the imf taking from the one but they are not neo-colonialists when it's time to repay when it's time to pay back, they become new colonialists. And all of those rhetoric that we've been using to deceive Nigerians for so long, those are dead. So accountability for me, these people should be accountable. Reputational damage, if it is attached to policy implementation, 
we would have sense by force. If the policy you adopt is backed by the pedigree of a particular economist, if that person's reputation is attached to that, the person would have sense. We always wonder why people don't resign. You would resign if they are doing it the wrong way and say, this isn't what I signed up for, but this is why I'm no longer part of it. But here, we'll see, we'll say, why don't they resign in this country? It's because we reward bad behavior. We reward bad policies. We don't hold people accountable. Let's start derapping them. Direct them. Finish their reputation. They would have sense when they go into government and force bad policy on people and wreck millions of lives while doing it. Mm-hmm. I, I, I get your point, too, okay? It's just that I feel that in an ideal situation, <laughs> all of this <laughs> would apply. Nigeria is not a country like that, I'm sorry to say. Far from. We don't, we're, I mean, we're just too far from. We don't have a government that is serious enough to think like this. Do you understand? It's not even a matter of rewarding bad behavior here. They detect the behavior as far as I know. Do you understand? I mean, if I were the dullest student in my class at Harvard, I would still be better than whoever. Whoever. Get than whoever, if you ask me. You understand? So sometimes I want to still give a little room, you know, a little benefit of doubt for the experts and quotes. Yeah? And because, I mean, all I see here is a problem with the government. The government is not ready to tackle the issue. The government does not have a priority. But people make up the government. That's I, what I'm I, I understand what you're saying. You get But there are people also at the helm of affairs. They are the ones who handpick well. the, other pe- the people that surround them. Mm. You understand? And those are the people that I call the government. Okay. You understand? Right. So it's not the ones that come and go. Okay. It's the ones, it's the ones that we'll come and stay. Do you understand? The ones that... In the next four years, they are I'm the same here, people yeah, that will yeah. come back. In the next eight years, mm. you will see that mm. they are the same. You know, it's the same mm. circle. Mm. It never changes. You understand? So when I mean, when people were saying, what should the focus of the government be? Mm. The only focus is to be reelected, is to remain in power. Mm. That's their only focus. Mm. Of course, it's a no-brainer. If people are not alive, who would be there to? What, what to would that Greek be? What, who would be there to to do business? You understand? But if if there is security, if foreign investors do not even come near you when they are not sure the that the environment that their investment is safe. And it starts from a safe environment. I mean, if I'm not sure that I'm putting my money where I know that so oh, that business should still be in existence in the next 10 years, making money. At the worst case, whether you are making money or not, but that, that business is still in existence and nothing is wrong with it, it's still in existence. If I can't be sure of that, I mean, that's the least that I would expect to be sure of before I put my money there. This issue of welfare, welfare, I think it's run away from us in a way. When we talk about welfare, I would just say security in that sense. But in terms of finding food for me to eat or something, I think people can find it. They can solve themselves. As a matter of fact, that's what is happening. The government is not feeding anybody, anybody as far as we know. So, but they, they come under this guise of taking care of people's yeah. welfare and then they bind people from actually taking care of themselves. And then they come up with numbers of people that, you know, they have fed or they have their pain for something know, somewhere. They, they just come up with all those figures all and you're wondering where all of that is even coming from. Rather than allow people to use their ingenuity to make way for themselves. Just get out of people's way, secure the environment, and let people think, let people find creative ways of solving their own problems in that sense. All right. Mm -hmm. I mean, mean, the basic thing is just for people's lives to be secure and people will be fine. If we are guaranteed of our rights to life, we'll be fine. I haven't earned one cover from this government. 
not from this government, from any government whatsoever in this country. I'm not, but here I am. They're not feeding me, they're not feeding my family. I'm here. I mean, the least they owe me as a citizen is my right to life. That's the least that any government owes its citizens. I wouldn't want to be insensitive to the men and women of the police force. Yeah. We know that policing can be hard. Policing crime, investigating crime, and keeping order generally in society. It's a tough job. And I, I think that's why we are also arguing for their welfare, for them to be better funded and better trained. Yeah. But one issue that came up during these protests and observing from social media that I would like us to talk about briefly is that of profiling. One of the runaway methods of SARS is if you're dressed in a certain way or you drive a certain kind of car at your age, you are most likely into cybercrime. And or, then, crime, or crime, in fact. Or crime. So, and then part of the tactic is to say, oh, unlock your phone. They look at your messages. God help you if you have a foreign number on your phone. Or you have pictures of you with white people. Some of the videos I saw from one of the protests actually quoted a policeman saying, if you are not into crime, why would you have a laptop? So, I'm thinking about the issue of is it, I know that profiling is also a problem in some other economies. America, for example, has its own issues around that where black people are stopped a lot more often and they are searched and in some cases harassed and which has led to its own victims. But here, is it a case of a clash of culture or a generational chasm? Because I hear older people call into radio stations or some of them tell their words that dress better police will not harass you don't do dread police will not harass you don't color your hair police i mean a lot of these innocuous things that young people do have actually become something that is used to profile them that has now made them especially targeted you know of course after a while, the net will be cast more broadly. You know, now you don't even need... SARS does not even need any excuse now to harass you. It's just like uh, flipping a coin and see where it falls. So, my question is, does culture and memes and the things that have been permissible in society, does it make policing hard? You know, is that what has made profiling the default methodology? in terms of policing crime. I mean, I may be able to understand a 20-year-old that has a bleach there because I'm also on social media. I see what their mates are doing. But a 50-year-old or a 60-year-old find that strange and can usually rationalize that and say, oh yeah, that's why police will harass you. you know? So are we seeing a bit of a generational chasm here or is it a question of cultural differences and all that? Is that part of the pattern in play here? Well, the police is a product of the society. Yeah. So yes, there's the culture bit of it where people that have dreads that will 
dyed hair, rich trousers, and low-hanging pants. Are in fact it's actually a combination of both and more. So yes, you have all of that cultural biases and prejudices against those kinds of behaviors. But then people are beginning to understand that this generation are a, they seem to be a different breed. So there's a cousin. So there's a culture. There's a, but for policing, you cannot you cannot rely on those kinds of bizarre and crude metrics and models to do your job. It honestly makes the job easy to just see somebody profile him and pick him up. Maybe two or two or five, you might pick a criminal. Three of ten. But you cannot be effective that way. In fact, beyond the legal aspects of it, where I know that the constitution even guarantees that you are not harassed based on anything as basic as that. Police training should go over and beyond that. And for SARS, doctors during this protest, doctors have been picked in their lab coats with their guns in their hands and all of these things. Bankers have been picked in commercial buses, not even that you are driving on your own. Developers have been picked. Children have been picked. Older people have been picked. Men have been harassed. Women have been harassed. So I, I think it has transcended culture. It has transcended generation. It is just ineffective policing and poor training that has led to all of this that we are seeing. People that have features that can be profiled, they come out from homes. Their parents see them. They may not agree totally, but they are beginning to deal with it. So the culture thing might erode at a point. After a while, people might get comfortable and understand that you are not your hair color or you are not your ripped jeans. But you cannot allow your police force to work like that. You cannot, you should not. I think it is war policing, it is everything that is wrong with our police is based on that. What Emmanuel just described reminded me of something I read in Anarchy State and Utopia, Robert Nozick, mm. when he talked about envy. What he just said to me describes a culture of envy within the SAS hierarchy. How, how is that? You look at people. It's not just dreads anymore. I remember all tattoos. I remember an experience I had. What made us fall victim was because of the way we looked. We looked like people with money, and that was what made us targets. So what do you call that? Even when people are not doctors, how does a doctor look? How does a banker look? There is something that the, the young boy may look somehow, but he has money. At the bottom of it is the fact that he has money he collected illicitly from someone that I want a share of. It's not deterrence. It's not deterring people from being Yahoo boy. It's us taking our own share of the money. So when you get to the doctor, when you get to the developer, oh, you have money now. So my own share. So, but now they come in a way where they are backed by the state, so to speak. So and then if you are in a country where when the economy was getting really bad and people were complaining, some people say, Nigerians should live within their means. Cut your coat according to your size. If there is food inflation, they will tell you, go to the farm and farm. If you have such sound bites in the radio, in the, people will start thinking, okay, because people's quality of life is actually getting worse. And then some people that are maybe through their human capital, their skill or something, are able to still find a way to maintain a certain kind of lifestyle. You feel they are robbing you of something and then you need to collect your own. You have the gun anyway. And you have the authority, you have the state as back. So there is that culture of envy that has emerged that I think is really, really dangerous. And I can see it percolates everywhere. Even the CBN, look at what is happening to banks. 
when we started banking in this country, after Sunudo did what he did with the bank, consolidated them and everything, I knew what banking services was. But look at what banking has turned into in this country, with all the burdens, with all the stifling on the banks. Even sometimes what the state is supposed to be, just pack on cost upon cost upon cost on the banks, as if the way they make money is by magic. You know, there is also that notion of money just floats in the hair and it just happens. Some kind of magic, there's some kind of magic to doing things. So they have that in their heads. So that's what I could see from what the man was said. There's a culture of envy here that is fundamentally a consequence of possibly now I don't have the evidence. When I say I don't have the evidence, maybe I don't have the hard data or something from the bad economy. Okay, so I agree with what both of you have said, and that's why it takes me back to even ask the question: what is the function of SaaS in the first place? Why was SaaS even created? Is SaaS meant to be chasing after Yahoo, um, Yahoo. Yahoo, Yahoo, Yahoo Boys and all of that? Are they, are they meant to be chasing after non-violent crimes? No. Just makes people easy prey or something. Because I don't think they have the mandates to even arrest Yahoo They people. don't. They don't. That's within the powers of the EFCC. They are the ones, they are the ones with, I mean, with, with the, the powers to handle financial crimes. It has nothing to do with SAS in the first place. Except they've turned into morality police of sorts. Because if how because when? what what Toby said from the question when he talked about generational chasm and people calling in and saying, Oh, you got picked because of the way you look. Now we are venturing into some kind of you know, there, we have norms, we have social norms and there there are morals attached to some of this thing. You know we are we have a conservative society. Yes. So there was also that. But like he also said or Emmanuel was one that said it, that these kids come from homes. So it appears parents are getting comfortable with it. A kid wears dread doesn't automatically make the kid a bad kid. So if the parents saw it as, you know, cause, oh, maybe it's a phase, it will pass. Because it does pass. The kid might wear dread today. Six months down the line, he might just cut it off. You know, it's a face. a tattoo. You know, it's it's you just know, a it's, thing. It's, it's, you know, you get that. all crazy over it at a point. So, then you get over it after, after some time. A lot of people do. So I'm thinking, I don't know, maybe they've become, maybe they've found a way to moralize the situation in their own heads or something. Because if someone calls into the radio station and says, oh, maybe it's because we looked like this. Like they say to women to them, if you got raped, yes. maybe it's because of the way you dressed. Now, those are personal opinions. People can even hold all kinds of personal opinions. But when we're talking about the public institutions, when we're talking about the government, it can't be from people's personal feelings. Because we're talking about institutions exactly. here. So it has to be grounded in something more solid than your mere exactly. feelings. Or, because that is not universal. Exactly. Your feeling, you may feel that someone else might feel differently. And it's only the law, the institution that accounts for what everybody can live with. Grounded in something more rational and accepted by a vast number of people, not just by right. a vast number. So that, that's what you're absolutely right. We can't pick suspects based on somebody's feeling or suspicion or someone's someone's notion of how you should be dressed and all of that. We don't all have the same notion of. I mean, there, there, <laughs> there's no manner to these things. Besides, the law says that everyone is presumed innocent or to proven guilty. Why would you just look at someone and then say, especially someone that, is not even, that does not even come before you in any criminal circumstance, so to speak? 
it doesn't even i mean it doesn't make any sense that's why i still find it hard to justify what sas has been doing it's still hard for me to pin it down to something it's absolutely unjustifiable i uh, it should be rounding up state police is something that comes up a lot is it one of our hopeful fixes will state policing help in this case i know people talk about state police state police a lot that okay so if you have sars and it's not federal sars if it's state sars then it's more accountable and even at the local government level and i know there's also the other argument where and i've heard some respectable people in this case on the particular occasion Femi Palama say that part of the fear for a state police is that you may have a case where the governor who is the chief security officer of the state whatever that means turns the police to his personal militia of some sorts and and like you said Elizabeth these are all election fears you know so what are the pros and cons of state police in finding a long-term fix to police brutality and all the accountability issues that you guys have discussed? It's not going to be an easy one, but I believe that as Nigerians, we would have to be the one to create the kind of society we want. Nobody is going to do it for us. The state policing issue is because there are legitimate fears. Sometimes I think of Nigeria as a natural state, in a sense because of the nature of that. Our politics has not matured to that point where, you know, people empower the way they use power. But at the same time, we have to start somewhere. And starting somewhere means the accountability chain has to be clear and solid and backed by, in fact, if it would have to get up to the way to the AG, in this case, it would have to be. I don't know how we're going to do it. I think we can debate how that would happen here now, but I think, some way, somehow, something has to be localized. Because the IGP is so distant from the states. And when you have to address a situation or arrest an emergency, sometimes it takes too long and things can get even worse than they were when they started to wait for the IGP's command. So someone has to be on ground to quell whatever is going on, to take charge, to lead in those instances. It may not be the state. I don't know. Emmanuel, you have an idea. Well, I have publicly been for state police in the past. And I still think it's a viable option. I still think it's a useful option. State, in fact, it's possible more local and more granular at the local government level. And I think it helps when we want to define accountability. It helps reduce the size of bureaucracy. It helps with decision making. Easier to reform and all of those things. So yes, I think at some point I still have a soft spot for defederalizing, so to speak, the police force. And would I still have a federal force, whatever that means? Mm. But, but the chain of command yeah, should it be the governor? Yeah, I, should it be the governor? Because this, look at the way during this um, yeah. protest. Yes. Somebody died in Bumoshaw. Yes. And, and the response of the governor of your state was just screaming protests. Yeah. I do not think we should be in that kind of a situation. Yeah, he actually said they have no control sure, over the police force in their states. That then, governors do not investigating wait. the circumstance of death. Not even so. It's oh, really a federal. Uh, okay, so it means but, an offense 
committed by the SARS cannot be investigated at, at the local level. Yes. That's what it means. Because it's F SARS at the moment. So you want to break all of that. But I know there are some jurisdictions that definitely have state policing and it works for them. There are some that have, I don't know what, what but we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We can actually copy working systems elsewhere. But personally, I have a preference for local and state fact, The concern of becoming uh, a governor's militia is real. I do not have any sensible response to that because I know it's a real fear. If the federal police can be this messed up, I wonder how a local police that is completely in the hands of a strong completely man, a government with all of the powers. But we have, because we checks have, and balances are yes, for the... Exactly. The, the we have the Ministry of Justice. We have... Right now, it will take... So, I think whatever reforms will happen along those lines, it will take beyond just um, reforming the police as an institution. It will involve a cultural reorientation. It will involve... Even electing governors and, and all of these people, it it's is fundamental going, to what we have as a country. Because it's a real fear. I still have my preferences for the state and local police. Yeah, at least where you're a lawyer, you should weigh in here. Like, okay, now we have the Inspector General of Police that is appointed by the President. We have a Minister of Police Affairs. I don't know what that office does. Maybe that makes me ignorant. We have a police service commission also headed by somebody. What I have seen is that except in circumstances where presidential privileges are granted, there is no other institution that can investigate the police first. I think the only case we've ever seen was the IG being investigated and prosecuted by the EFCC. And we know that presidential privileges were granted. And even after Ribadu left office, he still paid the price for daring to. So now, maybe you might not be able to describe for us the complicated morass that we have currently. But ideally, what should it look like? What is the role of the Ministry of Justice in all of this? The Ministry of Justice? Yeah. Okay, like you said, I am unable to actually describe. (laughs) 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 What it looks like at the moment, because, I mean, okay, so, from my little understanding, the Police Service Commission, or whatever it is, probably only addresses complaints, and all of that and recruitment yes which is still which is still which are not sure about Mm -hmm. at the moment i mean if they they don't know what they are doing on earth is anybody else (laughs) (laughs) you understand so so yeah so the minister of police you said i absolutely have no idea what that person or institution does really so the role of the Ministry of Justice, the Ministry of Justice just liaises with the police to help prosecute criminal cases. Mm. Okay. You understand? I, 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 so I'll, you know, I'll give you sorry, sorry. Yes, please. I'll give you an example of what I'm yeah, talking for. about. Okay. So, like, I read an article by Shegwandini. Was it two days ago? And I think it's a popular story, where a group of policemen were actually indicted by an Abuja court in the killing of yeah of six people 
in Abuja. And the gist is that the leader of that particular police unit was promoted. That is actually now an AIG. What that says to me is that the only person that can actually punish infractions in the police force is actually the AIG. So I'm looking at a situation where can't the AG, for example, issue an arrest warrant for erring officers that overrides the authority of the police structure itself, given all the contradictions and all the wanting to protect their own sentiments that may arise. So what, what I'm trying to go for is an unbiased adjudicator in this case that I mean, if the AG can issue an arrest warrant and say, oh yeah, the court indicted these guys and they have to answer for their crimes, you know, and they cannot be shielded from punishment, regardless of the sentiments of the structure of the police at the time, you know. So what stands in the way of such an accountability process right now? Is it a law? Do we need a bill to that effect? Or do we need executive powers of the president again? Actually, ideally, nothing stops the AG from issuing an arrest warrant, like you said, like you suggested. There is nothing absolutely stopping the AG. If the court has indicted someone for a crime, this person has been found guilty, he has been convicted for a crime, and probably even sentenced, then what exactly is going on? Why would anyone even be staring at them, and then the person is getting a promotion, it will become an AIG or something like that? It absolutely makes no sense. The AG, whether of the state, whether it's in the state or the federation, actually have the powers to do that. They actually have the powers to do that, to arrest such people. You understand? You've been indicted by a court, you have to serve that punishment. They ordinarily have the powers. But what stands between them executing their powers is not a law or a bill. They already have it. Mm. So whatever it is may not be clear to the rest of us. Mm. But they actually have those powers. The only power that the IG actually has to punish erring officers is administrative. The Ministry of Justice and the AG actually have the legal rights to prosecute, you understand, to prosecute and then to, well, maybe enforce <laughs> the law, you understand, or at least attempt to enforce it. And then we'll see how it goes from there. Let's see whether the police force would resist the attempt to actually enforce the order of the court. And they will take it from there. But I mean, if they are working together, like it appears in this case, then the rest is not clear to us. Again, what is the function of the police service commission? And as you were making, as you were, what exactly is their function? Because if it is punishing area officers, like they do in the military, where you go to the court martial and yes. all that, the ID has only administrative powers. He can recommend maybe an officer for prosecution. If it is the AG that does that, what lies in the police service commission? Because I would have thought that that body would also be able to carry out things like arrest, at least within the structure of the police, indict a police officer for misconduct, for misconduct, sack or get that person out of the force to face the civil court or civil, and given the minister of police affairs, affairs what? It is just a duplication. I'm sure some of these functions are just a bureaucracy, a duplication of functions. But honestly, it boggles the mind. 
It does. And it feels like this whole thing was set up just to achieve that. Just to obfuscate and cover people up and not achieve anything meaningful. And in case of the example you gave is very striking. If police officers, if there are no accountability structures where a police officer that has been indicted for murder still gets promotion, I think they are just pointing in the office, there is nothing you can do about it and there is nothing that can be done about it. And then you, but I think that should be part of the whole reform of the police and thoughts on where each of these things have to be clearly defined so that rules are clearly spelled out. And then we can begin to now understand what each person does, where reporting should and complaints should go to, how every officer should be dealt with, processes around that, what the IG is supposed to be able to do, what the governors are supposed to be able to do, what the commissioner of police is supposed to be able to do, where the attorney general's powers regarding the police begin and end, and all of those things. I think it is part of a larger reform that should happen within the police force. And right now, there are no clear answers. But I think it's something that needs to be addressed by the people that um, are, that should have the enough knowledge to address all of this. Because I think it's very important for that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Finally, finally, what do you guys think will be the legacy, so to speak, of these NSAS protests? I know it is quite common to say that Nigerians are apathetic. Can we say that? Nigerians, in this case, young Nigerians, have been awakened and would take ownership of their country and become more aware of their civic duties, which is to hold people in power a lot more accountable. So, is it just a one-time thing or are we crossing a rubric? so to speak. What do you guys think? Elizabeth should go first. Okay, so I think that um, as you rightly said, this protest has helped so to speak, awaken Nigerian youth to the fact that they can get the attention of the government, that you have a voice, and that we can actually all have one voice. And if we all have one voice, we'll get the attention of the government on anything that we want. So it may not be an immediate success, but it's a gradual process. We've gotten the attention of the international community. We've gotten, I mean, we've made people uncomfortable, whether they like it or not. It's not business as usual as of today. So, yes, I believe those are some of the legacies that this protest will leave. The fact that we can all have one voice and make it heard. If we all have one voice, we can make it heard. So that is one legacy. For me, I think the easy part is protesting. Actual participation in the political process is the thing for me. This young folks, I mean, quite younger than us, we are still all young. I love them so much. I like that they are fun, they are playful, they don't take anything seriously. So, and because they've been abused for so long, everyone, most people have written them off like, these ones, these ones that don't do anything. So this is a good, it's a wake-up call. I absolutely love it. I, in fact, I like everything about their sentiment. We have no leader. We are all leaders. Address us. Nobody's going anywhere. I like the fact that you don't trust anybody. I like their cynicism. I love everything about them. If you want to address us, there is the media houses. Go and address everybody at once. Don't call someone on the side and all that. At least this initial beginning because what they want is clear. 
you can't tell me you don't get it. What do you need someone else to represent them for? They are saying they want something. They want to answer. What else is there to say? Okay. I love so. that. But now, I want them to start getting into local politics. Get into your local your local government. Now, we have a local government in Lagos. Such that, if anything is happening anywhere, there is nobody to turn to. The legacy of Tinubu in Lagos, where we have no local government now. So if they can get that, if they can get that back, close some of those powers back to the people, get into local governance, start getting into the process and rewriting these things by yourself. I know it's not easy. It may not even be achieved by them, but getting it started is a way. So what would be the enduring like because these things are hard. Protests, you answers, you do all of that. It's hard. Even they would tire out at some point. But where the momentum can keep going is if they can actually get into the process like that. Just segue into the actual local politics grassroots. Run for national assembly. Some of them, we already know them now. So they should get into that process. Because even in developed countries, there are politicians get into the system early. That's why by 32, someone is already there. You're already in the party. You're already working. You already know the system. In fact, you're already helping to draft policy. You already see the result of certain ways, what works, what doesn't work, you understand. So by the time you're already, you're like 30, and it doesn't mean you can't be doing other things, right? It, it doesn't mean you can't, you, you can be a student and be working in the local government office or with someone within that ranks. You can break and have your way there. I mean, from this, there are agitation, right? So if you get into local politics and get into that and then walk your way through. I know they say the system corrupts or something, but... For how long how many people are with the system corrupt? In fact, if they get there, because I think some of the problems we've had is some people get there and they meet this shock and they go back. Like what they do, the culture within the political system, some people just can't deal and they leave. But this one's if they are that stubborn and tough-skinned and determined, if they can actually get there and still use their voice and their boisterosity and this, they are having nothing to lose thing to force their way in. Well, all well and good for them. And get into that system. Well, well, for me, the answers would uh, left the legacy. I absolutely think it was one, the simplicity and clarity of message, first of all, very, very, very helpful. The seeming lack of centralization, another huge winner for us because, well, we already know what happened in 2012. Um, so it was difficult to pin down who and what were the anchor points for authorities to, to leverage and then disband the, the protesters. I am one that believes, I believe in the power of protest. I actually think protests are good. In fact, I celebrated when the announcement came because I thought the protest worked. It was simple, it was easy, it was spontaneous, it was decentralized. Just enters. We don't care about the other shenanigans, just end the damn thing. And, you know, even if protests generally lead to unwelcome, unwholesome outcomes, but if they do not become ambiguous, you can face simple issues and address them on at the time with process as, as they need arises. I think that's a very useful, useful thing that we can learn from this process. And beyond that, I think we should always remember that each of these things is situated in a larger picture. First of all, in a bigger police reform picture, then in a better governance picture, and on and on and on and on. So I think those things are clear. And it was really surprising, pleasantly so, to see that while some people were saying we should reform the institution and all of that, young people were able to come out and say, 
we will reform the institution, but please, today, we want this done. It shows a yeah. very keen sense of awareness that they know what they want. And they might still be powerless in terms of making laws and all of those things. But I know it's a process, I think it's a process, but I think it's a good first step. We can build on this. Government should learn to listen to people and we should be able to make our messages clear, make our demands clear, make them simple. And if the authorities want to be fed, spoon fed, there is no better way to feed them than telling them to answers and no stories. There's nothing we want to discuss. It's so simple, it's so clear, it's so direct. I will not go as far as saying it's a pivotal moment, but it's a very noteworthy one. Very, very noteworthy one. And, and I, I think we can build on this. And I think young people, obviously, will be the ones that will make all of these things happen to the generation before us and basically give it up. And I think social media has also helped because they can monitor themselves. Absolutely. Unlike in, during our own time where there was this, where there was no, some people can just go somewhere and just do. Yeah. But here they can monitor they themselves. Can they monitor, know themselves. They can and they, can, they, they are so. You know, I, 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 they will they will just turn on you immediately. They will tell you this one right here now. Now they will show you the video. This is what is so happening here. It, 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 you know, it helps accountability. It helps accountability yeah. Yes, within their so ranks as well. Technology, social media, so is really very useful tool, and it is of course the young people that know how to oh, maneuver these things. Exactly. So I think it's a very noteworthy moment, and I think going forward, if we can leverage on this model, maybe we can begin to get some have some kind of yeah. input. Uh, even in Nigeria. Alright. Right. <laughs> all right all right thank you so much guys it's it's been fun talking to you thank you thank you thank you, thank you. Elizabeth Emmanuel.